The Good Friday Agreement, 20 years since the peace deal was signed in Northern Ireland. The world kicks out Russian spies, but Putin says it wasn't him. The PM says get Carter to be the new chief of the defence staff, and the Royal Air Force, 100, not out. Hello there, I'm Tim Cooper. Welcome to SITREP. 20 years ago, the British and Irish governments and the political parties in Northern Ireland signed the Good Friday Agreement. It contained proposals for a Northern Ireland Assembly with a power-sharing executive, new cross-border institutions with the Republic, proposals on the decommissioning of paramilitary weapons and the release of paramilitary prisoners. This was the official end of 30 years of troubles in which more than 3,600 people died. But now it's being tested by Brexit. Major General Julian Thompson served with the Royal Marines in Northern Ireland and joins us on the line now. Hello, Julian. Hello, Tim. How did the 1998 agreement break this pattern of conflict that we'd seen? You yourself witnessed last time, I think, 1976 in South Armagh. Well, it, what it did was it, it took the poison out of the well, in, in a sense. And the trouble was, at that stage, before the agreement, the paramilitaries were causing huge casualties to each other. Uh, they were killing each other more often than British soldiers, I have to say. And that, that stopped. And, and it's a wonderful thing to stop. People forget, for example, that more soldiers were lost in the first 13 years of Northern Ireland than in the 13 years of Afghanistan. A lot of people died. You were based in South Armagh. It was known as bandit country. And they're the sort of border areas that are potentially up for dispute with Brexit. Now, how bad was it at that time? Because I think we've, A, forgotten, or B, never even knew. It was bad. Um, we had a lot of people were, were wounded, and I was very fortunate. None of my guys were killed on that tour, but a lot of people were killed on other tours. Uh, and the worst thing was, as I said before, the inter tribal, if you like, conflict, the intercultural conflict, where people would stop uh, others on the road and shoot them, uh, and it was absolutely terrible. And we think we did uh, quite a lot to stop that, but it still went on. And that, I think, is one of the great blessings of the agreement, that they're no longer killing each other. Let's bring in now our defence analyst here at BFBS, Christopher Lee, who's with me in the studio. Christopher, how significant was this, and are you worried now about its continuation amid Brexit? The continuation, if there is a continuation, it's not of the same conflict. The continuation, if it's anything, is the dissident members of the old uh, PIRA, the old provisional IRA, who quite frankly haven't got anything else. But that's how that works. I think we ought to, the significance of this is that almost every day for a long period you had on the news and last night another British soldier. Uh, we got to learn the names, if you were living outside of the province, which you would have known, obviously, we got to learn the names of places of absolute tragedy and devastation. Warren Point. Warren Point on the same day that the assassination of Lord Mountbatten, the Oma bombings, Bloody Sunday, these things came impressed into people who didn't even know where the province was on a map and I think that that is the significance of what happened at the uh, at, at the uh, Good Friday Agreement. More soldiers died at Warren Point from two para than died at Goose Green. Now that's a stark statistic isn't it but because as Christopher was talking about there the normalization of this in our minds Goose Green we remember as a, as a, a dreadful event but a necessary cause whereas Warren Point a lot of us have forgotten. Yeah I tell you something another side of this 
get it into your heads. Uh, this was British shooting members of the United Kingdom. This was a civil war that went on for three decades. 3,600 people died in Northern Ireland in this period. Julian, I'd like to talk to you about... Well, it sort of links in with the rise of populism we're seeing right across Europe, the, the extremes of politics, and, and Brexit is part of that. Are you concerned now, and I'm really asking you for your security assessment, that the, the dissident IRA forces, as it were, some on the loyalist side as well, that they may seize upon this opportunity of the uncertainty over Brexit, the rise of populism in Europe, to resume their campaign with added vigour? Well, I am concerned about it because it could happen, but I, I sincerely hope it doesn't happen. And I hope that common sense will prevail because it will be an absolute disaster for everyone if they, if they go back to this. And, and I think it will be totally counterproductive as well. And as, the thing that Christopher did highlight just now is how there have been splinter groups from both paramilitary sides that have decided they're not going to go along with it. This is something I'm afraid that happens quite often. And we've got to have good intelligence and keep them under surveillance and stop them from killing each other. Let us talk just finally on this topic about the Irish border issue. It's It's been a football that has been used in the Brexit negotiations by all sides, I think we could agree on. But is there a solution that sticks out and is there any way the military, despite them having this history in the province, can play a role in this? Well, I hope the military won't have a role because I don't want to see armed guards on the border. I think the way to police the border, if that's the right way of doing it, or, or sort out the customs problem, is to do it electronically, as is done in other places. I believe it is not insoluble, but there are always people around who look for the sort of bits that they can grab in order to make trouble. And what we've got to do is to give them no handles to grab. That's, that's the key here, isn't it, Christopher? Yes, it is. I mean, you already have uh, people... Uh, uh, who I would describe as dissidents, and as Julian says, from both sides. And they say the first time a customs post, for example, goes up on the border, then we'll bomb it. And then we will have a security problem. It's not one that may not be fixed, but that's not what we're here for after the uh, Good Friday Agreement. Mm. It's something we've definitely got to keep a watch on and something that has the potential, doesn't it, to cause problems in the future. Let's move on now. And Julian, stay with us, if you would, for this uh, next topic, please, too. There's been global support for the UK's deportation of 23 unregistered Russian intelligence officers over the chemical attack in Salisbury. 27 countries, including the United States, plus the EU and NATO, have accepted the UK intelligence brief that blames Russia. President Putin's office has denied Russian involvement of attacking Sergei Skripal and his daughter with Novichok nerve agent. Well, Alexander ne uh, Nekrasov is a former advisor to the Kremlin and is also in our London office. Alexander, welcome. Thank you. So, was it Russia? Well, there is no evidence to point to, to Russia at the moment, uh, and I think that everybody has been rushing to make conclusions and even uh, expelling diplomats before the investigation has ended. So uh, I don't really understand what's going on. But uh, you, you must understand something. When governments expel diplomats, it's a sign of impotence because that means nothing. Uh, you know, business as usual as regards other things. So uh, I, I wouldn't pay too much attention to these things. This is symbolism. And as regards for that unity, well, I can tell you several governments already 
contacted uh, Moscow and said, look, we've done it because it was a sort of, a, you know, we had to do it, but uh, we, we will continue the same relationship and so on. So uh, please don't pay too much attention to expelling diplomats. I mean, yes, expelling diplomats always at the time of the Cold War struck me as empty gesture politics, you know, because we all know what these people do. I want to ask you a question. You say there's no evidence for it being Russia. In your mind, as a former advisor to the Kremlin, is it conceivable that this is part of the Russian government machine acting independently of Putin? Is that a feasible thing? No, it's not. No? And, and no, it's not. And I can tell you why. First of all, all these so-called patterns, you know, when they're saying, well, if we look back at the history and the names like Litvinenko and others uh, uh, creep up, uh, absolutely no evidence of Russian involvement anywhere in this incident. What the problem is that Britain has been allowing some very, very nasty people to come over here with their dirty money. And of course, they brought their methods with them. So to be surprised now that these people are up to no good and fight with each other and so on, this is very strange. And I find this remarkable that, you know, the government now is saying, oh, we need to look at those, you know, uh, rich Russians with their dirty money. Excuse me, you let them in. You invited them in. It was done since the 90s. Everybody was saying, please, come to us, come to us. And now, suddenly, everything's turned around, and they're saying, well, who are these people? Why are they here? And so on. I find this very bizarre. Um who are these Russians then? These, well, these dirty Russians? Well, some of them obviously became rich in the wild 1990s when, uh, you know, former uh, small-time crooks became very, uh, very wealthy very quickly. You mean the, the friends of people that were friends of leaders who distributed them all the wealth of Russia, those sort of people? Well, mean? these were the people who became rich under Gorbachev, who made a mess out of his reforms and uh, let these crooks, this mafia people, become very wealthy because of privatization. It was a terrible time in the Soviet Union history, and Gorbachev stands accused of this. So these people with money then obviously moved in when privatization kicked in. And, Priva and you think, Alexander, that some of them are responsible for what happened in Salisbury, do you? Well, uh, it could be anybody. I mean, in Salisbury, we have about, you know, 20 scenarios who could have been responsible, from the terrorists from ISIS who are back and who have used chemical weapons in Syria and who have promised to uh, cause problems to Russia on numerous occasions, to rogue elements in the American intelligence, in the British intelligence, in any intelligence. So, you know, to point a finger at Russia when the, there is no proof at all, and what is happening now, they're saying and most absurd things, that yes. a nerve agent has been traced to the door of the house. Excuse me, if the nerve agent was used, uh, Skripal and his daughter and that poor policeman would be dead by now. They would, be, they would not be moving around so, Salisbury. Sorry, sorry, no, you're saying the nerve agent wasn't used because if it had been, they'd be dead. But Of course, they would have been dead. But our, our, no, our, our, our authorities say the nerve agent has been used. They, you're saying they're lying? I'm saying that they haven't done their investigation <laughs> and the inspectors who came over said we need a month or two to find out what it was. You see, a nerve agent disappears after several minutes completely. There is no trace. Everybody knows that. So, they are, unfortunately, the police are making up these stories. The police are making up these yes, stories, they Christopher are. Lee. I'm Let's sorry. bring in Christopher Lee, Alexander. Um, I'm, I'd, I'd just like to know um, if you could have an operation like this without President Putin signing it off. 
Uh, and if the answer, as it appears to be, no, you couldn't have an operation like this uh, unless somebody was very, very powerful in, let's say, the GRU, who could actually do it uh, without it actually going to the to the Kremlin, you're left with one answer, and that is McMafia. Uh, that uh, and I speak as a Chelsea supporter. Uh, Mafia could actually um, uh, put a lot of money about, could get their hands on something like this. But then why? Because the real question is why would President Putin sign off something like this on a very ordinary, out of date target? Yes, exactly. That's the question. And at a very awkward time for Russia, when they had the World Cup and the elections coming over. And you see, you must understand, you, ha you have to always look at the pattern and the background. Why would Russia do it? There is no point. Skripal was of no interest to anyone. And when people say to me... it ten years ago, it would, it would, you could see the reason. No, but, but when but people say to me that Putin needed this to boost his popularity before the election, I'm sorry, he was winning anyway. So didn't, excuse didn't me. Didn't Skripal want to go back to Russia? Couldn't yes, that he be did. A reason he, for... he, no, he wrote a letter saying that I would like to return and was being looked at, but uh, that has nothing to do with it. Right. What, what I'm saying is that there are so many possibilities. There are. We... There are. Let's. Let's. So sorry, Andrew, uh, to interrupt. Will Alexander. we ever know the reason? Well, yes. Well, will we ever know the reason? I'm going to put that question to Julian. Thompson, who's been listening patiently to this, do you think we'll ever know the reason, or in your mind, are you certain of it already? No, I don't think we will actually necessarily know the reason. And one point that Alexander raised is the business of the way that nerve agent dissipates. And I was, we were taught that years and years ago when I was still serving, and we thought we might have it used against us. That it once it hits the ground, it's gone in a few seconds. And what about the UK? I mean, that, that's one point definitely. But what would the UK have had to have shown other countries for them to? buy into the theory that this was Russian intelligence people and therefore, get, you know, kick them all out across the world, so to speak. Well, they've got to show them that they... something that shows that it is Russia. Now, what it is they've shown them, I've no idea, because they presumably... it's highly secret, it's all been obtained through intelligence, and the problem with going public with uh, telling tales on people is you sometimes have to reveal the hand behind how you found out, and you might not want to. This is the sort of pull devil, pull baker situation you get into once you start delving around in this sort of stuff. Brilliant. Julian Thompson, thank you. Stay with us. Alexander, thank you so much for joining us. Really do appreciate it. Fascinating talking to you today on SITREP. Still to come, why the PM said get Carter when it came to choosing the new Chief of Defence staff. And the Royal Air Force celebrates 100 years of flying high. Yes, you're listening to SITREP with Tim Cooper, Christopher Lee in the studio, Julian Thompson from our London studio. Now, it's a big day or it will be a year on from this date. It's one year until the UK leaves the European Union. The UK is unconditionally committed to the security and defence of Europe. We share the vision of a strong, secure and successful EU with global reach and influence. An EU capable of countering shared threats to our continent working alongside a confident, outward-looking UK. Uh, there we go. That was the Prime Minister, Theresa May, speaking last year. So how has the talk of strong future cooperation on defence and security gone down across the channel? Julian, we'll speak with you in a moment. Christopher first. Uh, across the channel, the idea is that the United Kingdom has everything to lose. Uh, the latest is, for example, 
if the United Kingdom manages to get out of Brexit, as every sign is that they will do now, but then they want to stay in the customs union without going to the technicalities of that, then the United Kingdom will, will look very, very weak to any outsider that they want to do a deal with because they would have to have it agreed by the European Union and they're not actually in the European Union by then to, to get a vote on it. And so as, as we go on, more and more of these things start to look as if they're unravelling. But if you go down to Westminster and talk to uh, MPs there, they say even the ones that want to remain accept that it will happen. Will it happen, Julian? And are you feeling that it's starting to unravel from this uh, security and defence cooperation point of view? Well, with Brexit happen, of course it'll happen. Um, and the, the one thing that worries me about the, the security aspect is, is this, that we have said we're not going to get involved in the permanent structured cooperation, PESCO. Uh, but at the same time, officials without parliamentary supervision are signing up to various agreements like EDAP, the European Defence Action Plan, and the Security and Defence Implementation Plan. I'm sorry for all this alphabet soup, but that's what happens when you get into the European Union. Um, and these have been signed off. And the, the problem there is that it sucks us into things we might not wish to get sucked into. The defence of Europe rests on NATO, because NATO is underwritten by the United States and the uh, power of the United States. The European army doesn't add up to a row of beans as far as the Russians are concerned. So talking about getting closer to our European allies makes nonsense, except in the context of NATO, which works, I know, because I've been there and done it. Certainly have. That's the point that a lot of people have been making. But let's get the perspective from over the channel and keep going a bit, basically, uh, to Germany. And let's talk to Sebastian Schultz, a German commentator, regular contributor to the esteemed magazine uh, Jane's Defence Weekly. Hello, Sebastian. Hello, Tim. Hello. How now, how does Germany see all this Brexit mm. shenanigans in terms of defence and security? Very good question indeed. First of all, as we just heard, Britain continues to be a member of NATO. So it is not like everybody is saying their goodbyes, goodbyes to each other and waving at each other. And second, as we uh, were reminded just a couple of minutes earlier, the British government has indicated that it still feels responsible for European security regardless of Brexit. So over here, one will expect some kind of action underlining this position. So to me, the question really is, how the continuing harmonization of European military efforts will square with NATO and the British position post-Brexit, which we are still in the process of figuring out, actually. Is there a way Britain can show positive intent, particularly in the field of equipment? UK wants to sell wildcats to Germany, and right. I think uh, there's a possibility of buying boxer vehicles, I think, from Germany. W mm. Would that sort of thing help align? Well, exactly. I think besides the uh, the two programs that you've just mentioned, which uh, are in the very near uh, term of, 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 of the future, in the sense that these are already established programs and established uh, airframes and, and vehicles, um, I think uh, that um, this would indeed be one very pra pragmatic way for the British Armed Forces, and in the case of the uh, the British Army choosing the, the German MREF boxer, um, that would bridge the armed forces with the uh, with the continent, and specifically in that case, 
with Germany. And uh, let's not forget that nothing really stops Britain and the EU to further cooperate in the field of armaments development and other procurement projects. So, for example, in the mid-future uh, uh, horizon, there is the tornado replacement that is being talked about, and the Eurofighter Typhoon is one of the options that could come into place. So this is, again, something that we're talking about an established uh, defense program from which British industry would profit as well from. And just finally and briefly, is there yeah. a sense in some quarters in Germany that actually Britain getting out of this, not being part of PESCO, is a good thing for Germany because it gives them the field clear to dominate? <laughs> clearly not. Um, <laughs> clearly not, because there's, the French remain, as we all know, so there is no Frexit. Um, it, it makes things easier in the sense that there are now two major players who have to butt it out, so to speak. Um, but I don't think that the German position or the German point of view is vindictive toward Great Britain and uh, the choice of Brexit, but rather that of pragmatism and moving forward in the sense that PESCO is here and PESCO will develop further. And what we will have to see is how the particular post-Brexit British position in terms with NATO will fit into all of that. Okay, Sebastian Schulter, thank you very much indeed for joining us on SITREP today. Christopher, any brief thoughts on what you said there? I've seen, a, I've seen a draft of a document which would be the basis of a speech that the Prime Minister would give uh, to NATO in July. And it is tied in with the restructuring of defense, British defence policy. And what she would say if she followed this, um, here is our defence policy our structure of the British Army and the Air Force, and also the re-coordination of the Navy with other navies, which is fundamentally there for the defence of Europe. So an external player, yes, an external player. In Interesting. Thank you for that. Let's move on, though. And it's a CDS time. Sir Nick Carter, General Sir Nick Carter, has been chosen to be the next Chief of Defence Staff. He's currently Chief of the General Staff, will move into post this summer. Here's former CDS Lord Richard talking to Forces News about the job earlier this year. You're suddenly um, mixing with literally the most influential and uh, important, depending on one's view, uh, people in the land. Um, and you know, going to state banquets and uh, meeting presidents and prime ministers, and actually representing your country at a very senior level. But, and I mean, it's a slightly technical point. I believe the chief of defence staff, particularly now that the armed forces are smaller, should command the armed forces rather than have command vested in the single service chiefs. That you are obviously the senior guy and that gives you great influence and you have ready access to the political class but at the end of the day you can't order the, the services to do something and that leads to inefficiency and sometimes confused priorities. Major General Julian Thompson is still with us so Julian one very simple question for you the PM went for an army man and not General Sir Gordon Messenger of the Royal Marine what do you make of it? Well I'm sorry about that um, because Gordon Messenger is a, a terrific guy with a lot of experience, and I'm sorry that he's not going to be CDS. Christopher, you called this one right. Uh, uh, yes, but with regret about Gordon Messenger. Uh, I, would, I would now hope, of course, that Gordon Messenger becomes the next first sea lord, um, because as a Royal Marine, he perfectly, perfectly okay, Has okay to do it. Has that happened before? 
Uh, has no, it? no, no, it hasn't, has no, it? No, 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 no. Yeah. Nobody's ever had, a, had the sort of insight to do something like that. Um, and because what would happen? He'd lose his uh, platforms. He'd lose his docs at the same time. <laughs> um, I tell you something. Uh, a lot of people didn't, wouldn't have voted in in a democracy for for General Carter. And one of the reasons for that is that he knows what he wants and will be his very much his own man. He's not always a diplomat, uh, and he's certainly exactly the sort of person that needed to command the chiefs of staff, which is a huge, huge departure, uh, which the former uh, uh, CDS, Lord Richards, thinks should happen. And, you know, at the moment, the chief, uh, the CDS, is just the chairman of the board. Yeah. And I think that uh, he made a speech, did uh, General <clears throat> Carter, uh, which followed on from last year, his complete reorganisation of the British Army. Uh, he's a he's a really good really good choice. He's a very really powerful man. I've interviewed him a couple of times. He's exceedingly powerful. Uh, Julian, do you think just briefly and finally he's the, he's the right person, aside from Gordon Messenger? I'm sure he is. I don't know him, so I can't um, comment. I totally disagree, incidentally, with uh, David Richards' view of having CDS as the, as the supremo, and I think the way that the MOD is going now uh, down uh, stems from the reorganisation when it happened. That's a point for another time, which we will return to, hopefully with yourself, Julian Thompson. Thank you for joining us today. Now, the RAF will celebrate 100 years service on Sunday to mark the anniversary. We've got a game, a game on SITREP. So, Christopher, can you name these planes by their sound alone? That is? I can say it was Rusty Mustang. This one? Lancaster? Right engine. Right engine. Wrong aircraft. Yeah. That's the right aircraft. That's, That's the right aircraft. I can't see this catching on the radio. I can't see this, but I heard a C-130 like that. It's not a Lightning. It was good, that's right. C-130, yes. Yeah, it's yeah. a C-130. Well, this one, this one at the end? It uh, wasn't a Lightning. It might therefore have been a Typhoon. Is they good? Yes. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll run through them. <coughs> You're quite right. Stop with Camel at the start. You can't mistake that. Can you can't. You? You know, no. My car sounds like that. <coughs> yes. Uh, then we had... Um, do. You sold it to me. Well, yes, indeed. <laughs> you don't buy another, do you? I've got one going. Um, next, we had three Spitfires, yeah. hence the right engine, yes. the Griffin and um, the Merlin, Merlin engine. Um, some had Griffin as well, but the later variants they were. Langston Bomber, of course. Mm. That's a lovely plane. Phantom. Hercules. Actually, say it's a lovely plane. I mean, 20,000 rivets flying in loose formation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was up there, though, at the older... Battle of Britain Memorial flight when they uh, brought her back from her latest refit. Uh, mm. Absolutely stunning to see her flying. Then we had the Phantom, a Hercules on the ground, because that's significant, I gather, that yes. she was on the ground. Yes. I don't like Hercules. We couldn't find one in the air, I'm being told by our production team, despite our extensive archive. That we well, you might not have found one actually flying. <laughs> Uh, that you could have recorded. Yes, yes. I did the last flight out of line on Hercules, and right. that was a terrifying experience, frankly. 500 feet all around the country. And, of course, last up we had Typhoon. So there we go. It's important, isn't it, that we um, we celebrate this? It is. I, mean, I have to tell you, um, 
I think it's right. We should celebrate 100 years of the Royal Air Force. Otherwise, I mean, you couldn't have had it much longer because there weren't aeroplanes. But, you know, the Navy uh, founded in 1314 and the Army founded in 1659 or whenever the Battle of Naseby was, would congratulate the RAF for, 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 for lasting so long. Uh, and people like General Thompson, we just heard, who thinks that the Army should have its own Air Corps and the Navy should have its own Air Corps, and who needs the RF anyway. And it's that competition which the uh, the origin, or the man that really pushed it more than anybody else, uh, Trenchard, Marshal of the Royal Air Force, Trenchard, as he, as he later became, although he was in the Army at first, and he was a Major General because he tried for Dartmouth. Well, he didn't try for Dartmouth, he tried for Osborne uh, in the Navy. The Navy gave him a test, and he, said he was rather good at arithmetic. But only rather. <laughs> and, and, and so they sent him off to the army. Um, but he pushed it. He pushed it and pushed it and pushed it and said that something better has to come out of this war. Something we have to realise that one day the whole idea of war will change. And for the first time, the British civilian will take part in that war. Mm. In other words, they would be bombed. And he saw that. 20 years before it happened. Yeah, and it's, it's an interesting thing. Just very, very briefly, final point. Do you think if there hadn't been the First World War, the British air forces would have stayed with the Army and Navy? Um, no, I don't think no. it would have done. It wouldn't have had to. And the other thing, certainly not the Navy, because there was a man called Maclean who had a <coughs> bit of land in the Isle of Sheppey, <laughs> and they flattened it out, and they said to a naval friend, you want to try landing a few aeroplanes on this, because one day we will put them on ships. Absolutely right. Walt Forsyth, thank you, Christopher. Nice to see you again. That's it from this week. Do check out our video on our Faces Forces Fair, 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 Forces News Facebook page. That's the one. Or you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. From me, Tim Cooper, I'm back next week. Thanks very much. Have a great Easter, won't you? And from us all at SITREP, goodbye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. Doctors say the condition of Uvia Creek.